Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Love you. All right. Um, I have an apology to make, a, a, a word of thank you to Ken Wagren, whose sermon last Sunday on shame was a great challenge and a great sermon. Thank you for that, Ken. What you didn't know, and I didn't know, when you told me months ago what you're thinking I'm preaching on, was it was the same passage that I was going to start up again in the fall. And so I'm preaching on the same passage, but not on shame. And I think it will complement your fine word. I decided to stay on it because a group of us were leaving Sunday shortly after church for the Boundary Waters for a week. And I, I had already worked on my sermon. I said, I can't redo my sermon that morning as I was listening to you. <laughs> so we left on Sunday for the Boundary Waters, which is in northern Minnesota. It's on the border with Canada, a couple thousand square miles of lakes that no boat can have a motor in. You just paddle. It's a beautiful area. I know many of you have been there. But this time we had a bear come into our camp. And young ladies, uh, I, I want to tell you there was one guy who stood out. In, in his fierce attitude towards the bear. And that was, that was Ben Zellers. When he realized that bear had taken his peanut M&Ms. <laughs> I, I mean, he was, he was after that bear. Okay? Just think if he marries you and a bear comes after you. All right? Right, Ben? Am I right? Yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm just a, a word to the wise, you know. If he loves his M&Ms, how much more? <laughs> right? Okay, will you stand with me and we'll make our way in the Word of God to Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. Matthew 16, 21 through 28. The Word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Father, it is powerful. I am a man speaking your word, Father. May these not be my words. May they be yours. May they come to us with the Holy Spirit, with power, and with conviction, both in me and in us as we listen to them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This is a, a new point in the, the gospel of Matthew and in the life of Christ. And it's announced that way. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This is uh, immediately following Peter's confession of Christ. It is, it is a no turning back, eyes fixed. One of the gospels says he fixed his... I've, I've had it in my mind and I think I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He fixed his head like flint. He, he fixed his face towards Jerusalem on his final journey to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And as he fixes his face, his forehead like flint, I am going, I am going, I am going to Jerusalem. He starts teaching his disciples not the big picture of his kingdom, not its ethics like he did at the beginning where he says, blessed are you if you... If you are a peacemaker, blessed are you if all men curse you and speak ill of you. Blessed are you. Where he talks about giving your money away, where he does all those things. And now the focus is much more intensely personal and immediate. It's not the big picture of his kingdom. It's what he's doing. And so we really come to his purpose. I mean, we can't say that the previous years of his life and public ministry were not his purpose. They were. But he is now on his way to the thing that will define all of the human race and the moment in, in history on which the axis of all time, time and eternity revolves around, which is his cross. And so he's explaining it to them. He's beginning to show them that he must go to Jerusalem. He's telling them the things that lie ahead, who the enemy is, what they're doing, and uh, and even so far as saying he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised up. These are the things that Jesus begins to speak about to them. And as he introduces this topic to him, Peter, who is the great disciple, Peter takes him aside. And as Peter is inclined to do, he lets Jesus know. We're going to see in a series of passages that began with, well, back last fall, or last spring when we ended in Matthew, which began with Peter being asked, but who do you say I am? He asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? And they said, well, some say this, some say that. Then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Whoa, that is Peter. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then immediately after that, we have this. Jesus began to speak to them and show them what's going to happen and how he's going to be killed. And that he will be raised on the third day. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And then we have immediately after this another story where, where Peter is at the center. Three in a row with Peter right at the center. And each of them, except maybe the first where he just says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter seems to make a mistake along with his greatness. And of course, this is you, isn't it? <laughs> Don't think you're ever going to do a great thing without failing in the midst of it. Peter does the great things that disciples do. I mean, he is the great disciple, but he fails. Don't look down on Peter. You're no better than Peter. I'm no better than Peter. Just hope that we have the faith of Peter so that we do have the chance to make these huge failures. Because Peter's there. Peter's doing. Peter's talking. Peter's leading. Peter's 
being Peter, the rock. And uh, it's easy to make fun of the guy who's the rock. It's easy to say, look at him, look at him. Because he's standing there in the arena, right? Because he's living before the world and he's not shy. It's easy to, to make fun of the guy who's, who's out there. But praise God for those guys who are out there and those women who are out there in their love for God. Those who raise their arms. Those who, as Ken spoke about last Sunday, dance during worship because they know that God is winning and they feel his power in them. Praise God for the Peters of the world. So it's no discredit to, this, to Peter that he features in these three, uh, three consecutive stories from the Gospel of Matthew as the primary voice in, the, in the, these instances among the disciples and twice being rebuked for the things he says, which we're going to see next week at the Transfiguration when God the Father actually rebukes him. Peter is not just a voice, he's an actor. He does, he acts, he, he doesn't speak. When others are silent and cowering, Peter acts and speaks. His, and this is his eternal glory. His name is written on the, the, one of the, the gates of heaven, the New Jerusalem. His name is there, probably the north gate, the most prominent gate because he is a man and he does the things that a man of God should do. He's great. He puts himself on the line. The others are standing back there, being a little quiet. But he's, well, he's a little a bit like Ben, seeing that his M&Ms are on the ground and the bear is there, you know? He's going he's gonna to act. He's going to do. So, yes, he does speak inconsiderately. He speaks rashly. We see him act and speak and be rebuked a number of times across the Gospels in the boat, asking Jesus to command him to walk on the water and having the faith to do it and then falling because he gets scared and Jesus says, why do you have so little faith? He is the one who does. He is the one who speaks. And so at this point where Jesus is announcing a new, a new thing to his disciples, beginning to reveal to them what lies ahead, making his way on his final trip to Jerusalem, revealing his kingdom's purpose on earth, where it's headed, his end, his glory. And Peter objects. Is he alone in objecting? Well, of course not. Do you think any of the other of the 12 were happy that this, this journey that they're engaged in with Jesus is going to end with his death? And they hear the resurrection, but it didn't seem to penetrate, did it? It was stated clearly it's going to be raised on the third day, but all they can hear is this, this end, the opposition in the end. Peter is no buffoon. He's sometimes portrayed as a buffoon. He doesn't blurt out this objection in the hearing of all. He's wise. He doesn't go to Jesus in public and say, nah. He tactfully takes him aside, recognizing his authority not wishing to oppose him before others. And in private, he begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And in response to this rebuke by Peter of Jesus, we have stated by Christ the most fundamental principle of the Christian life that was ever announced. 
we find stated by Christ in response to Peter, the iron law of Jesus. The iron law of life. The iron law which admits no exception. Now, I suspect some of you are already going, I don't like that. I look at Jesus as being the king of grace, the king of forgiveness. And of course, you're right to do so. But if you think that the king of grace, the God of forgiveness, the son of God, does not have a law that you must follow to know him, to come before the Father in glory, to experience the joys and the powers of the Christian life and the eternity that he purchases for us on Calvary, if you think that he has no rule or law, you're mistaken and you are not reading your Bible. Because this law that Jesus enunciates in these verses, admits no exception. And Jesus said to his disciples, after rebuking Peter, if anyone wishes to come after me, do you wish to come after Jesus? Do you wish to follow him? Do you wish to go through Calvary with Jesus and the resurrection with Jesus and come before the Father as a son of God with Jesus? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The word of Jesus, the King of grace, the God of forgiveness. The woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. Jesus' foes say, she's caught in the act. Should we, should we execute her? Should we stone her? Jesus draws in the sand. And then after a bit, a pause, he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And these, these haters of Jesus, they go, huh? And from the oldest to the youngest, we're told they start wandering away. Jesus is love and mercy when it comes to adultery. You can be forgiven even as an adulterer. You can be forgiven even as a murderer. David, whose son Jesus was, was a murderer and an adulterer. You can be a woman of the night. You can be a thieving man like Zacchaeus. You can be a fisherman. You can be 
a Pharisee. You can be, you can be just about anything at all. And Jesus welcomes you. He is the God of grace. He is the God of glory. He is the God of forgiveness. But you can't say, I refuse to die and follow Jesus. This is the iron law. You must give up your life. Of course, it being Jesus, the God of grace, the God of forgiveness, the God of glory, if you give up your life, you gain eternal life. You don't lose. But Jesus is very serious here. If you don't give up your life, if you don't take up your cross, if you seek to save your life in this world, if you make your pursuit this world, you will die, and he will not save you. This is his iron law, iron, admitting no exception. So what do we make of Peter's objection, and what do we make of our own objections, and what do we make of this iron law? Well, I want to make a couple points about why this iron law, why this iron law is not a law. It's not a law that we respect. It's not a law that we state to the inquirers. It's not a law that we push in our witnessing. Jesus did, of course. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus, he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, yeah, the, what does the law say? And the young man tells him, Jesus says, go and do these things. And the man says, I've done all these things. And he says, Jesus says, well, then you have one, one, th- one last thing you gotta do. You got to go and sell all you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, it says, goes away, sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looks after him, sad, and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you satisfied with the amount in your bank account? Do you think your future is secure because of how your IRA is doing? You and I, we're these men, and we need to be very careful because Jesus means this law. It may be to me that Jesus is speaking and saying, give it up. It may be to you. And Jesus is not joking. Pharisee comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus again goes to the law and says, asks a man, what does it say? And the man says, well, it says this and this. And Jesus says, yes, go and do that and you'll live. And the man goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, who is my neighbor? Because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, tells the story of the good Samaritan. And the good Samaritan is the one who's his neighbor, the despised Samaritan, the guy that no one wants to hang out with and party with. 
The Pharisee is, I've got to love the Samaritan? Jesus says, unless you do that, you can't have eternal life. This is, this is not a, a recipe for a effective witnessing, we think. Our witnessing is so often you can have Jesus on top of everything. And what the Bible says is that you can have Jesus and it's better than everything and you give up everything. And so I know I'm speaking to some who aren't Christians this morning, but I want to tell you it's an iron law, but the reward is incredible. You become a child of God. You become a son of God. You become an heir of eternity. You receive the Holy Spirit of God and you live on this earth as though you were a God yourself because God your Father is inside you by his spirit. Unbelievable stuff. So this iron law of Christ, this iron law that when Peter rebukes its application to Christ saying, no, Jesus turns to him and says, Satan, you understand the, the interplay there? Peter says to Jesus, no, you don't need to die. Jesus says to Satan, to, to Peter, Satan, the idea that this is not an iron law, the idea that you don't need to die to, in, to this world to inherit eternal life, Satan, Satan saying these things to you. Satan's speaking on television. Satan has TV shows that are called radio or television evangelist shows where they say, you can have it all and Jesus. Satan. Imagine what Jesus might say if he came into our American churches and heard what is preached. He'd say, Satan, Satan, you're not calling people to die. Well, why does Peter not understand the need for Jesus to die? Why do you not understand it? Why do we not want to do it? Peter doesn't want Jesus to die. Rebukes him for speaking of the possibility. And he makes a great error at this point as a great man. The reason for that error is clear. He's not willing to see Jesus die. He can't comprehend what could be obtained by Jesus' death. It's ignominious. Why should the one he's just confessed to be the Christ, the son of the living God, die? You understand? I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to him. It would be to you as well. Don't think you're different than Peter. Die? No. You're going to die? No, I object. I won't let them take my God. They're not going to kill you. This is Peter. Is Peter sold out to Jesus as an earthly king? To his kingdom being an earthly kingdom? Is he wanting gold and silver? And the soft robes that Jesus said that the kings wear, is he wanting that kind of recognition? Is he wanting that kind of reward? No! <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't want those things. He spent enough time with Jesus. He knows it's not about those things. He doesn't want Jesus to die. It's not about himself. It's about Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you that Peter's being selfish because he wants the robes and the gold and the crown and the throne. It's not. This man's no fool. 
He can't see the glory of Jesus dying. He can't see it. He does not understand at this point the nature of Christ's coming and his upcoming death. He does not understand that for Jesus to bring many sons to the Father, which was why he came, that he must die in their place under the wrath of God, fulfilling the justice of God. Peter looks at it and says, you die? No way. He cannot envision any power or any good coming from the death of this great, beloved Son of God, whom he's just confessed to be the Christ. He can't see it. As yet, his eyes are blind to the glory of Jesus' death, to the necessity of Jesus' death, to the great salvation stored up in Jesus' death for all those who follow him and carry their cross. He doesn't get it, but he will. This man who said, you will not die, your blood will not be shed. Listen to what he writes in his, in his eponymous epistle named after him, 1 Peter 1. He says to the people he's writing to, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. He's learned his lesson, hasn't he? He's saying, look, conduct yourselves in fear. God is a judge. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This blood that he says in Matthew, no, no, it won't be shed. Later in life he says, the precious blood. The blood that saved you. The blood that's better than any lamb. He loves the blood. He loves the life. He loves the death. He loves it. Peter worships the God who shed his blood. And here he calls in 1 Peter the blood that was spilled precious. It is a precious death to Peter. Because he sees what it purchases. Because he knows that that blood has washed him and redeemed him and made him one with his father. In the same way, friends, if you do not understand the glory of Christ's death on Calvary, the glory of that death and that blood which was shed for you, if you do not know that Jesus died for you, if you don't worship a lamb who was slain, and whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, if you don't understand these things, you can never follow Christ's iron law. But if you know that Jesus died and his blood saved you, and that you have an, an eternal inheritance, then this iron law becomes a law of freedom and joy because you're no longer bound. You're free. I want to speak to you briefly before giving a final reason that we don't embrace this iron law. I want to speak about what it looks like to carry your cross and then a second reason. First is we don't understand that Jesus' blood was shed so that we might have eternal life in our place. What does it look like to carry your cross? This is the law. Carry your cross. Go to your death. Go to your death. 
and the thing that I, I would, I think must be said above all other things is this is not something you can do. It's a life you lead. So many of us want to say, I've done this. I did that. I'm doing this. And say, God, be satisfied with me. I, I've done this thing. You know, I, I've been baptized. I, I go to church. I, and all of these things are important as part of our Christian life. But we know that you can go to heaven unbaptized because the thief on the cross did that. We know that you can be saved at the end of the day. You can come to Jesus at the end of the work day. You know, Jesus' parable of the, the man who goes out and hires people and some start at dawn, some start at dusk, but they all get the same wage. You know that you can come to Jesus at 89 years old with a week left to live and you get the same reward. It's glorious. But this, this law is then a life that is lived. More specifically, it's a death that is embraced. It is daily saying, I will carry my cross. There are two ways to carry a cross. One is when it's imposed on you. And, uh, and then there are the things that we just have to embrace. With Jesus, it was an embrace of the cross. But with Peter... It was imposed. Jesus had freedom, but Peter is told by Jesus, you know, the day's going to come when you're going to be old. You're going to be led somewhere. You don't want to go by a young hand. You're going to be led. And he's telling Peter, you're going to die. You're going to die for me. It's not, it's not a choice that's imposed. But there are many points in Peter's life before that final death where he has to choose death, where he chooses it. There are two ways you carry your cross. One is voluntarily, and the other is imposed. Voluntarily, carrying the cross, as Ken spoke about last week, is speaking to the world about Jesus. Bearing the ignominy and shame of saying, I believe in Jesus, when all the world around you is mocking Jesus. Speaking about Jesus. Saying to your family, when they invite you to the homosexual marriage of their son, you know, I love you, I love you, I love your family. But this is a wedding that I'd have to come and mourn rather than come and celebrate. Therefore, I won't join you. It's your cross. Jesus says you must carry your cross every day. Pick up your cross, man. Pick up your cross, woman. Pick up your cross voluntarily. Speak of Jesus. Do what Jesus wants you to. Give. Do the things that are voluntary. Do them. Eternity rests on it, right? Eternity rests on this faith that does. And I want to speak to you also about the, the crosses that you don't choose, that are imposed, that are involuntary. Now, if I can, speak about it um, personally. There are some things that God throws into your life that are crosses, that, like Peter at the end of his life. He just has to do it because God in his providence, God in his sovereignty has said it. God has done things in your life. He may not have made you as pretty as your sister or as bright as your brother. 
And these are little things, but for those of us growing up, they're crosses. They're imposed. We don't embrace it. For my mother and father, God imposed three sons dying. And two more being born with the same diseases that caused the first, two of the first three to die. So for them, embracing that God could want your children to die. Continuing to have children. Trusting God when your friends are saying, stop having kids. Even more for my parents, knowing that my third brother who died, died as a result. Their doctor friends told them, Surgeon General of the United States later, at that time their friend told them, this was pure malpractice. Joe died because the doctors were proud and would not listen. Doctors in an adult hospital when Joe had been treated at a children's hospital until that time. You've had hard things happen in your life. You've grown up in a minority. You've tasted the reality of racism. You've been abused by your father as a woman. Not a voluntary thing. Could God be behind that cross? The reality is in your, in your response to it, you show whether you're willing to live or willing to die. Friends, before malpractice was a thing, said to my parents, sue, sue them. And my dad said, a lawsuit will never bring Joe back. I'm not going to sue. Your anger at your father the suffering you've experienced as part of a minority, real. But the cross is great because if you carry this cross, you gain the glory. Thank God for that cross. Thank God that he's treating you as a son. Hebrews says, God causes you to suffer so that you are disciplined and gain his glory. Praise God that he's caused you to suffer. Carry the cross. Embrace the cross. This is what it looks like. It's not the culture we live in today of complaining and demanding rights. It's saying, God, praise God. Thank you, Father, for giving me a life which teaches me, shows me daily what it is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I, I value Jesus more than anything. I don't want money. I don't want recognition. I don't want to be the beautiful one that the world bows before on Instagram. I want heaven. I love Jesus. Second reason why we reject carrying the cross, and I end with it. In the last days of World War II, if you've ever read any of the histories of the the events of the Germans were in the capital. The capital had not, Berlin had not fallen yet. The Russians were advancing from the east. The Allies, well, the Americans were advancing from
from the west, moving eastward. The race was on to Berlin, who would capture Berlin. The Nazis, the government functionaries in Berlin, they were partying. They knew the end had come. Hitler had rumored, and was true, had, had committed suicide. And so, and so Berlin, if you read about it, all the people, the young people who were in the government, all the people in Berlin started doing orgies. They turned the, uh, the Admiralty building into just a vast place of orgy. They were drinking, people were sleeping. With, you know, it was, they said, we're going to die, so let's live. We're going to die. They feared death. They saw the Americans, they saw the Russians, they said, we're doomed. And because they feared death, they went to a life of partying. They said, we've got to have it now. The author of Hebrews writes, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, the children of God, he himself, that is God, he himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus went to death sharing in our nature, our flesh and blood nature, so that through his death, he might render powerless Satan who has the power of death, that is the devil, to render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You are not a slave if you follow Jesus and carry the cross. You embrace it freely. But if you are not a slave of Jesus, you are enslaved by the fear of death. And everything you do in life is to live life to the fullest because you're afraid of death. You're like those admiralty people in Berlin partying it up because you see death coming. The Christian one who knows Jesus, sees Christ in heaven and lives a dying life here on earth because there's no fear of death. God, give us freedom from fear of death. God, make us bold so that we don't fear death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your son, this precious lamb of God whose blood is precious whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, whose blood covers our sins, makes us white as snow in your presence, not filthy, scarlet with sin. Father, remove from us the fear of death. May we carry the cross as you've called us to through your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.